1: Is that, that's the second time he's done off. They never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those
2: boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't
3: you? Yes. Good luck.
2: So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever.
0: Marion Jones has a lot to answer for. Ever since she set the gold standard for tearful confessions six years ago now, back in 2007, every sports person caught up in any sort of scandal seems to feel the need to try to generate serious emotion to go along with their heartfelt apology. The problem is, a lot of these people have reached the very top precisely because they don't exhibit any signs. (laughs) They're heartless automatons Of normal human feelings. So you're left with Tiger Woods doing a press conference looking and sounding like a robot being operated remotely by a PR. Or overlord Lance Armstrong Doing his best To show a human side To Oprah But just yep. ending up Making terrible gags Looking like a weirdo Betsy Andre yep. and, uh, and now Alex Rodriguez One of the most famous American sportsmen the last 20 years uh, A Major League Baseball Legend over there Charged by the sports Authorities with Doping offences Facing the media And giving Rather a bizarre performance Sort of the impression Of holding back The tears The problem being That it wasn't actually A confession it didn't Confirm anything. He didn't specifically deny everything either. He did say that he was appealing and that he's fighting for his life at this stage. But it just it seemed like a very typical example of a sports person trying to generate that emotion and not quite coming off. Of it.
2: Well what was the thing about Marion Jones' tearful confession? She was going to jail, wasn't she? Yeah. I'd have That's why she it. was crying. Yeah, I'd have a cry as well. So if Alex Rodriguez was going to jail, I'd say he might even cry. He would cry tears of self-pity. I mean, at the moment, the, the tears, that the water that came to his eyes mainly was to lubricate his cornea. But if there was any excess water there, it was because there was maybe $50 million at stake for him here. $28 million a year salary. And this isn't one of those Rio Ferdinand things where you get paid even when you're banned. This is, you're not actually going to get paid. So if
0: you were in charge of Alex Rodriguez's, or if you were part of his PR machine, what you would do was tell him that he's going to jail, even if that's not the truth, because that will get him really crying might. and really winning a bit of... He's, well, not a very, he's not a very liked figure over in America, it should hmm. be stressed. Whatever pushes,
4: really. whatever
5: pushes his buttons, really. I mean, if you're a PR man, then you know, I suppose that's what you would do. You'd find what pushes his buttons and then go to play number one in the PR fightback playbook, which is... <laughs> start crying and don't stop until you've
0: gotten what you want. It's a very interesting story. MLB, Major League Baseball, say that he took testosterone and human growth hormone, amongst other banned performance-enhancing drugs, for multiple years and also that he obstructed their investigation into this. He's also a guy who's admitted doping in the past, admitted that he doped in the early 2000s after essentially he was caught out for doing that. So there's a lot going on here, according to the MLB, and yet they only ban him for a year and a bit pat themselves on the back over that. We're kind of more conditioned here and in a lot of places outside of the United States to seeing two-year bans for any drugs transgression, unless maybe there are some mitigating circumstances. But just over a year, and Bud Selig, the commissioner, comes out with this Pat McQuaid-style self-congratulatory statement, talking about how great all these tests that they have in there now are. Tests that were in other sports a little bit before now, is probably fair.
2: Yeah, uh, they are, I suppose, rightly proud that it's a non-analytical positive, meaning... That he's essentially been caught by investigative work rather than by failing any drug tests. Yeah, this
0: is a good thing, but Bud Selig has been in charge a long time there, mm. and Major League Baseball is, has been brought, in fact, American sports generally are being brought kicking and screaming into mm. the era of.
2: But what I liked about the story, or what I found quite interesting about it, was the the clinic that uh, Arod and various others were going to is called, you know, Biogenesis, but it calls itself an anti aging clinic, and who could be against? An anti-aging clinic.
1: It's in the youth, you know, Well, it's
2: medicine. You know what I mean? So maybe you get to this point where it's blurring the lines a little bit. I mean, ultimately what they were doing is, is pretty cut-and-dried sports doping. You know, testosterone. I mean, I'm not sure about the anti-aging qualities. But maybe, maybe it does help to hold back the march of father time. But, um, you know, that that's what the... That's what the clinic was calling itself. And I'm sure among the general population, if there is in fact any, um, anything like... You know, what I'm saying is that such medical treatments could become commonplace among uh, the general population uh, and maybe still be illegal in sport.
5: Okay, ha- hang on a second here,
0: Owen. Uh, let's go back a second here. What did, you,
5: what did you describe Tiger Woods as there earlier on?
2: In his Mia
0: Culpa press conference? Yeah. Uh, like a robot being operated remotely by a PR overlord.
4: I am also aware of the pain my behaviour cause to those of you in this room I have let you down and I have let down my fans for many of you especially my friends my behaviour has been a personal disappointment
0: see during all those little gaps that's where the lines are being fed mm. in
5: what, what I actually think there is that that reminds me a lot of the very end of uh, Terminator 2 when Irish Spoiler war- started, alert, first of all. Uh, when he's about to get lured into the pit of molten lava, and he turns to um, Sh- uh, Sean Connor and says, Now I know why it is that you cry. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds almost. Murph, at least exactly one person, at the least one person is going to get onto you. And, John Connor,
0: yes. And probably give out to you for ruining the end of. Uh, well, what Great can America. I say?
5: The film was released at least 20 years I ago. I can, I can take my chance.
0: This is the one thing that the Sean Cavanagh, Joe Brolly, Tyrone debate is missing so far no tears yet no and I
5: mean I think you know if, if Mickey Hart and the Toronto backroom team know what they're doing Sean Kavanagh is going to do a press conference at some stage this week and tearfully apologise to the children of Ireland for what he's done uh, you know ruining their dreams basically uh, and spitting in all of our eyes with his hateful cynical foul that we see at least
2: 10 of in every game <laughs> well that's the thing I don't really understand I mean what, does Joe, has Joe probably not been watching Gaelic football his entire life
5: yeah, I, I think I think there is an a, there are a couple of loads of elements to this and we'll get into it in a couple of minutes, but I do actually think that the fact that it was Sean Kavanaugh as opposed to one of Theron's full back line that did it mean it's kind of a totally different thing because w- w- why is that? Well I, I just think that the GA are introducing rules so that players like Sean Kavanaugh can can do the things that he's done over the last two weekends, which is, you know, kick amazing points and run uh uh, through the, the through the heart of opposing teams' defenses, and just to see a guy like that doing it, um, I think that I, I think that that maybe hits on more than well. They want to hurry up and
2: sort it out. Then I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, I love that Joe Brodie. I mean, I watched it and yeah. was you know thinking this is fantastic. But at the same time, how can you possibly agree with what he's saying? Because I mean, he was he was actually blaming Kavanaugh. He was saying, I think less of him as a man. This kind of thing, but. What would, how would Kavanaugh have turned around to his teammates? What's he going to say to his teammates if he lets a guy through uh, at the, because he doesn't want to get booked or because he doesn't want to make an offense against the spirit of the game, which, is, which, as you say, happens 10 times every match? How does he turn around to his teammates and justify that? He has to do it. He has actually got no choice. The rules of the game leave him with no choice but to commit a cynical foul. So you can't blame the man when the rules are so obviously wrong. Sonia
0: Sullivan has been critical of Irish athletes in an article that appeared in the Irish Independent this week with Connor George. The the premise of it really was that she feels that Irish athletes are too willing to accept mediocrity. They're happy to be Olympians. They get their A standard. They take the foot off the gas a little bit then and go along and just compete in these major championships and don't generally compete year-round enough internationally. They just keep it ticking over at home. Mark English is one guy... Uh, Donegal, 800 metres runner who has been putting himself out there, ran a personal best in London the weekend before last, which is pretty good timing to set himself up for the World Championships, which start in Moscow on Saturday. We're going to talk to Mark a little bit later on. I'm looking forward to having Gary Smith on the show today. He's senior writer with Sports Illustrated, has produced some of the most iconic pieces ever in American sports writing, including a 2005 feature on Emile Griffith. Griffith was a Hall of Fame world champion boxer, but his career was largely overshadowed by one particular fight in 1962, after which his opponent, Benny Parrett, died. And it, tragically, it is an unbelievable story of that particular night and also of Griffith's later life and his life around that time. So looking forward to speaking to one of America's top sports journalists, Gary Smith, on that one later on. Murph, what I find fascinating about this GA story of the weekend is that one team, and one player has been criticised by one pundit. It shouldn't be that massive a deal, really. But even today, Sean Moran has a piece in the Irish Times following up with Joe Brodie. It just strikes me: this is how big a story this has become.
5: Yeah, I think it's interesting that uh, that it has become as big as it is. And I think if you were to have a look at it and say, right, change the speaker on Saturday evening and say it was Pat Spillane, I don't think it's going to be this big a story because I, th- I think what. Uh, is most interesting about this, and I'd be interested to get Oshin's opinion on this, but it, that it's an Ulster pundit criticising this, and that for better or worse, people have said that this is an Ulster football creation from the last 15 years or 20 years, and that as a result, it kind of seems like Brawley is coming at this with nearly a convert zeal, that, you know, seven or eight years ago, he was praising Tyrone's professionalism in doing this, and now it's turned into this thing where He's he's just gone off on one and said that this is yeah, you know, that this is, you know, the all of the ills in the modern game encapsulated in one sort of, you know, two seconds of action from the Ireland quarterfinals this weekend.
0: Anthony Moyles and indeed O'Shea McConville are with us, Oshim, what do you think of Murph's theory this week?
4: Yeah, um I just I don't think it was in any way premeditated. I don't think that's that's Joe. You know, I've got to know him over the last couple of years and uh he's a very passionate man. He's <laughs> extremely passionate man. And when he gets something in his head, and he firmly believes in it, he'll take it and he'd run with it. Like you know, is it a like, bigger deal because it's him
0: saying it? Given that he has defended to t- certainly defended Tyrone Norma over the years.
4: Yeah, it probably is, and I think you know it's sort of like an also thing, and people f- maybe feel that you know the fact that Darian Tyrone be- practically hated, ha- have hated each other always on the football field and different things. like got There's huge respect off the field, but. Um, a lot of people feel that Joe overstepped the mark at the weekend I just I, I'm sort of disappointed that the sort of the points being been lost in all this you know and it's been more about Joe and, and Sean Cavan and Joe having a go and different things he got there and uh, Tyrone and maybe Mickey Hart taking the moral ground and, 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 and you know using it as a as stick to beat uh, Joe with but I just feel there's a point lost in all this which is well I think the one point that he made that sort of hit home with me, and I don't know whether it was just me or, you know, the fact that I'm coaching underage age and different things I got there, but the the youth do mimic everything, from under sixes, under eights. They mimic everything that that their that their heroes do. Sean Cavan was a hero. Unbelievable performance again at the weekend. Unmarkable at the weekend. You could practically out of the game for fifteen minutes. Bang! Just you can just turn it on. Uh so from that point of view, you know, he was he was exceptionally good to watch. I see under its trying to do that dummy that he does. You know, I do that yeah, yeah, yeah. but I guarantee you when I go to train on Friday evening that they're gonna be there will be certain individuals, certain young fellas who will, you know, pull people down and different things like that. So it's not something that you want to see, but it's it's something that uh it's in the law, but in this case, the law is an ass. And and I think Joe was trying to accentuate that point on Sunday evening. I think it's lost in the fact that he sort of did go off on a bit of a rant.
0: But the point about that
4: that I would raise is that if you took...
0: And you've kind of you know, you've almost answered the question before I've asked it because you've made the point that the kids that you coach will copy the dummies and they'll copy all the good stuff that Sean Kavanagh did. If you took Sean Kavanagh's career as a whole, everything he's done in his career... I'd be happy enough to ask kids to copy it, even if one or two incidents like the one the other day isn't ideal. Overall, I think Sean Cavan has probably brought a lot more good stuff to Gaelic football than bad.
4: I would agree. I would completely agree with that. Do you think has all the good stuff he's done got the same publicity as this incident? Probably not. So therefore, you know that's what kids are listening to for the whole of this week. It'll rumble on until the semi-final. Now, it'll. It'll come up again when Mayo and Tyrone meet the next day, and there's another tackle of 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 in a, a similar in a similar vein. And I don't get this argument that the same thing happened early in the game, or you know, different things we like got. It was highlighted because it was it was you know late on in the game. It was a fact that um, Monaghan really needed a goal. Uh, their go-to player was Conor McManus. And any time we got the ball, he was fouled on, on on Saturday evening. I was I was sitting in the stand, and I was hugely frustrated from the minute the game started. Cormac Reddy, uh, start, began to bl- blow the whistle and continued to blow the whistle for any indiscretion. The, the point I want to make, and, and people don't aren't going to understand this point. But it was an, it was a game between two Ulster teams, and there's certain things that go on in Ulster games that probably don't aren't allowed down here, and and. Uh, there's niggle and there's different things he got there. I, I, I should have raised the point last week, but I thought about it uh, at the time that an also referee should have refereed that game last Saturday evening. And he should have be, he should have been... Uh, and he'd know how to nip, and nip that sort of thing in the bud very, very early sorry, on. Sorry, what has
0: that got to do with the Kavanaugh incident at the end?
4: Well, I don't know what it's got to do with the Kavanaugh incident, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is... Boop! sets of players were completely frustrated from the minute the game started both uh, sidelines lanes were very frustrated with the way Carl McGrady was refereeing the game I was frustrated I was doing co-commentary and I felt as if if I moved that I I was in uh, in fear of getting booked at some stage because everything was every single thing was pulled up and, and the two teams were not able to play football. There was huge frustration. I was hugely frustrated, and I wanted Cormac Greally at the time to give Sean Cavanagh a red card. And I know that's not within the rules, but I wanted him to get a red card because I felt it was that severe of an incident at the time. Now, Sean Cavanagh was perfectly within his rights to do what he'd done. Perfectly within his rights. It's the law, you know, and it's and it's the rules that that have let players down, that have let us all down at the weekend. I think. Uh, the fact that Joe Brawley has a rant and all we're talking about for the rest of the week is Joe Brawley. And, you know, as you say, the good things that Sean Cavanagh has done, the good things that happened at the weekend, and we're left talking about this one thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, Murph, you've raised the point on Twitter, I saw that what Sean Cavanagh did is not necessarily anything massively different to what was it, Michael Shields did yeah. in the subsequent game. Yeah, well, I, I just in, thought in it was theory, interesting. In, in Basically, he, he got his hands on the ball um, without picking it up correctly, therefore pre- preventing a Dublin goal, but there was nothing much said. Yeah, I think, I
5: think we all remember the incident where uh, Shields dove on, uh, dived on the ball inside the small square. Bro- uh, Bernard Brogan was a, had his foot basically cocked to just uh, tap it into the net. And it was a, the denying of a certain goal. And Conor McManus had a chance for a goal. Uh, Shields denied Brogan a certain goal with a cynical piece of play, which is picking the ball up off the ground and he knew that he was it wasn't even that the ball rolled into his hands he was on the ground He there was no other way of picking it up other than by fouling it uh, and I just thought it was interesting juxtap- juxtaposition because Kavanaugh is getting is getting slated you know and he is getting quite a lot of abuse and what Shields did Anthony is is just as cynical it's actually more cynical really if if you think about it
6: Yeah it is just a cynical Murph and um, if you remember actually there was another incident in that game where Sheehan actually got inside I think Kevin O'Brien and O'Brien did what he should have done as a defender which was he didn't blatantly pull him but he kind of dragged him back got two hands on him and I think she, if she had gone over I think Cork would have got a penalty. Um, but look there's no you know I'm kind of amazed at the fact that people are kind of going on about it so much in the sense of you know we have to Change our moral compass. Like I think mm. Joe's point is well made. Right, it, it, the 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 actual bare bones about it. I e yes, there's cynical play, but there's been cynical play since. You know, any sport, in every sport, they're cynical play, be it rugby, be it whatever it is. Like, I mean, and I don't think, to tell you, me, uh, like, I mean, I've, I've gone across players when they've looked like a goal has been on many a time. And I've just said, right, I have to do this. A guy's got away from me at six and I just dragged him back by the jersey and I've taken whatever it is because he's straight down through the middle. And God knows what will happen after that. It's not necessarily, it's a pure goal chance. But, the 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 powers that be need to look at it and say, okay, last man or whatever it is is straight red card. I don't know what else. I and mean, you know what? Let's not get into the ins and outs of it at the moment. But definitely, the punishment has to fit it in the sense that the player thinks in that split second where he's going, okay, I need to do this for my team. He's also thinking, Jesus, I'm only twenty five minutes minutes into the game here. If I do this, I'm gone. We're down to fourteen or whatever it is. You know, whatever just flashes across your mm-hmm. mind. And then, if those rules are set. We go back to Ushin and his under sixes or his under eights. They'll know that the managers of those teams know that, and you bring it right through from an age all the way through. Like I mean, if you want to talk about moral compass, look at the way referees are abused at some games. I was at an under fourteen final in me there last week, and the referee was absolutely abused from one end of the game to the end of the by game by supporters, by by the management of the opposition and a few supporters. Like, I mean, to the point that actually the referee asked for this to be highlighted and to be brought, he actually made a point at the end of the game. He said, I'm not standing for that. Under-14 game. So, like, I mean, you're 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 a 13-year-old and you're listening to this. So a referee calls free against you. What are you going to call him? So, like, I mean, without saying, you know, fellas need to shift their moral compass, we, we need to get nice and clean and say, oh, are you, you want to go through for a goal? Go ahead. Put it in the back of the net. You know, yeah, we'll lose and we won't get into an all our. So essentially semifinal. you think they're
0: far more important... It, moral issues in the GA. Of
6: course there are like I mean there's there's lots of lo- loads and loads of different issues in the GA, just as in a, any any organisation you know and like I mean the GA now is an organisation with the whole kind of racism thing that kind of reared its head there a number of weeks ago and there's there's people jumping on the bandwagon of that and then all of a sudden it kind of dies down a bit only for the next issue to come along be it for or against like that Mead player was actually cleared of that a couple of weeks ago but his name was named in one of the Sunday papers not so long ago you yeah. know his family Family have been going through a tough time of that you know he's, this, is, this is an 18 year old lad who has to go into the world and, and get a job and stuff like this so there's lots and lots and lots of different issues um, I think Joe was right to ha- kind of highlight some of it uh, I think having a go at Sean Cavanagh and, and, and being personal about Sean Cavanagh is yeah, completely wrong. You
0: should think less of Sean Cavanagh as a man. I'm paraphrasing there. That's, th- yeah. Most people are agreed. I think yeah. that's a bit yeah. ridiculous. But uh, as you say, I'm talking about Joe Brody nonstop stop uh, the, no. the, the, the entire time. But I have noticed in part of the reaction to this, a sort of anti tyrone a hostility towards Tyrone from a lot of people. This is on social media and elsewhere, which I think I maybe hadn't I've forgotten, a, a lot of people maybe forgotten a bit about Tyrone, given Donegal's dominance in the last couple of years and there's maybe been a little bit of that against Donegal. There's been a bit of a backlash against them in the last couple of seasons but a lot of people really seem to dislike Tyrone. Any reason why that might be? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm asking the right man here, not, not the wrong man.
4: I can understand it. Um, I don't know, I, I just think that, you know, some of, the, some of the stuff that goes on on a football field and you're, you're supposed to leave it on the field, I think, you know, one of the things I think I said all the, early on in the year was I felt as if Donegal would definitely beat Tyrone because I'd talked to the two McGee brothers the week before and they had said that this was one game that they were up for because some of the stuff that went on in the league match overstepped the mark. And that's, I wrote a book uh Whatever I meant years ago it was now, and, and, and I mentioned a couple of uh, players in that, and I still stand by that 100%. Some of the stuff that was said to me was overstepped the mark. I think for me, that's where a lot of the. Uh, the Hatred or the dislike comes from it's verbal stuff that comes from Tyrone mostly, yeah. It? It's verbal stuff, and one of the things that you pick up, and there's a couple of teams do it, it's not just Tyrone. I don't want to be Tyrone bashing today, because um, it's only Tuesday. I like to wait to the, wait to the weekend, <laughs> but uh, one of the things that uh, that's highlighted over this past uh, number of months, and maybe even this past couple of years, somebody misses a free kick, somebody kicks a ball wide all of a sudden you get three, four players in that in that uh, individual's face. Um, you know, you watch uh, let's say somebody gets done for over carrying, you're hugely frustrated the next thing, you've got three, four players in pushing at you, just wanting to flick that switch that you're gonna that you're gonna lose it and Players out there who will lose, it, and I'm sure they're gonna they're gonna test uh, some of the Mayo boys. Maybe in no shame. That definitely isn't just
0: Tyrone, though.
4: No, that's what I'm saying. But that's one of the things I think they were the standard bearers for that for for many years, and a lot of teams have a lot of teams have uh, added that to their repertoire over the last maybe year or two.
0: Let's talk about Donegal and Jim McGuinness and what exactly happened last Sunday, Anthony. <laughs> Thanks. What's your theory? What exactly happened? Well, I've been saying
6: all year. I think Mayo are are, are been playing at a different level and I know people could say oh well Connacht was bad you know but they dismantled Galway in the first kind of 15-20 minutes um, and their power, their pace, you know just their dominance around the field is is, is something to kind of behold. Um, I think last year really really hurt them and you know just stepping back a little bit to usheen's point there about you know certain lads like... Uh, doing different things. I don't think they were ready for Donegal last year in regards to the 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 street smarts. You know, Mayo are is a team who will play you. if you play it clean, they'll play it clean and they'll play you with football. You know, they won't they're not necessarily a dirty team, they're not a cynical team. Mm. Um, but I think this year they are definitely well equipped to play whatever way you want to throw it at them. And if you want to if you want to mix it, they'll mix it back because they are physically an enormous team. Um, it helps when you have Aidan O'Shea probably playing in the the form of his life um but Donegal were i think I think if Lee should showed a bit more uh, you know kind of. Belief. Belief, yeah, yeah. And a bit more, you know. One just more forward. Go, uh, yeah, like, I mean, uh, Leash basically said, you know, and I've heard people saying this all year, kind of, oh, you, you can't beat Donegal playing a, You know, you need to kind of play them at their own game. And I always disagreed. I said, you know what, you need to keep the game wide, which Mayo tried to do last year. They tried to keep their corner forwards really wide, tried to expand it. And they probably learned from Tyrone this year, myself and Oshim were at that game, where Tyrone tried to switch the play a lot and tried to move the Donegal defence around. Um, Mayo did that a lot better they had the players to take the scores and then they just cut they switched it inside and just ran straight through the middle and of course the fact is that Donegal still were carrying lads like Lacey wasn't fit you know and he hasn't had his best 15 out there and it shows you that there's just when you win in All-Ireland and then you scrape the surface there's not a whole lot there behind it
0: Was there an inflexibility about Donegal's approach this year or we Sat here a number of weeks ago, a couple of months ago at this stage, talking about our man, how they were faced with how Grimley was faced with this decision of do I stick with this attacking b- plan that I've worked six months on or do I abandon it because we're losing heavily at half time. Jim McGuinness, after the match at the weekend, said, Look, we had a system in place for 2011, system in place for 2012, system in place for 2013, and you only change that system at the end of each season, which I found kind of interesting. It seems like despite what happened against Monaghan, there didn't seem to be any. You were you would have expected maybe a little bit more from the McGuinness Donegal setup.
4: Yeah, maybe. Um, I've seen them all year, and they only had one other plan, and that was this, to put Murphy in the edge of the square and launch the ball into him. That really didn't work. Uh, um, Mayo had had uh, Donegal's number when it came to the direct ball into the full forward line. Uh, I think the reason why I think the real reason why Donegal didn't change was that they have, don't have a lot of trust in their defenders. Uh, they 've been struggling the half back line has been struggling the half forward line has has not been the same two games in a row they 've really struggled at that level. They have no outlet ball whatsoever, so they have to carry the ball out of the fence they 're looking for runners to come to to join in to uh, Lexy McHugh ghosting in the positions, uh, Lacey ghosting in the positions. They didn't have the legs. They surely do they did this you, year.
0: Okay, so that's the difference because the, all those weaknesses you highlighted. I'm wondering how none of them were exploited or obvious last season.
4: Well, I just think they had the legs last year. They had a huge amount of hunger. They had a base at midfield where Gallagher had the had the had the, had the you know, had the season of of his life. Uh, he hasn't been able to in any way replicate that this year Rory Kavanagh being taken off in most of the games he's played this year I think the only game maybe he did as justice was the Tyrone game they w- were big time up for that game and you could see that mm. after that it was all deflated it all mm. come down Darren had their number nearly beat them an, an extra forward leash again you know you see what happened to him against Monaghan when it was really put up to them and put into their face don't get me wrong like I mean they didn't become a bad team overnight but they just they didn't, have the, they didn't have the legs and they don't have the strength and depth. The, the players were bringing off the bench even on Sunday were making absolutely no difference. They were adding to it last year. They were detracting from it this year.
5: Yeah, funny enough, I think a lot of people have said, oh, you know, the Donegal system and people in the media, you know, hyped them up to the last last year and all that was found out this week. I think that's obviously wrong. And I think also that uh, what, What we found out this year about Donegal is something that we actually highlighted last year that Donegal had 15 players, 16 players, and they couldn't afford to have any injuries last year, and luckily enough, they didn't. And I mean, you know, you look at teams throughout history, you know, for their first or second alliance, maybe they they did just have that, you know, single mindedness and also the luck with injury. And Donegal didn't have that luck with injury. And if you look back through the year, they didn't have Neil Gallagher, Carl Lacey, Mark McHugh. At any stage, the three of them f- fully fit, and if you looked at even last year, I mean, they were three of their five best players, five most important players. Absolutely,
6: like, I mean, Leo McLuhan this year. You know, you think of him last year. Like, I mean, he's been taken off in every game. I don't even think he started there. Started, you know, so yeah. once it it shows, it really does. I remember, you know, after ninety nine, mid two thousand, um, you know, the preparation, and and sometimes things happen, and we got to the we got to the league final that year against Derry, and lost in a replay. So we went through a pretty ferocious campaign then went into another league campaign and then started losing players. I remember well, Gerrity got sent off we lost John McDermott we lost different players and the McManus was injured and, and all of a sudden it just snowballs and you end up in a situation where you meet a team it would have probably been better for Tony Gall this year if they'd lost that to their own game because they could have actually got back you know they would have had probably a Six, eight, probably weeks. even more yeah. week of a, of a, of a yeah, delay because it was one of the weeks. first games. Yeah, so it was actually, seven weeks. Yeah. get your injuries right because once you get into the qualifiers, it's literally. And out she is tonight. Okay, how are the bodies? Hmm. Who's who's down? Get the physios working. You do a very light session. Thursday is just kind of going through a bit of tactics. and bang banging you in again. Yeah. So as I say, it was always going to kind of happen. And unfortunately, then they got drawn against the strongest team.
0: Oh, you were um, or Anthony, I should say, you're hugely complimentary of Mayo's performance. A lot of people are just trying to keep a lid on it Mayo, saying that we've done this in quarterfinals before. I don't know; they've, ever, they've never quite done what they've what they've done this weekend. Is there something different about Mayo this year? Yeah, I think you
6: know people can talk about all oh, the hype. The hype to hype and absolutely. Like Mayo fans, as you well know more yeah. <laughs> are probably, you know they but I, I kinda got a bit slated for a few people from this saying, Oh yeah, sure we'll go crazy. Like I mean, they may go crazy, but as long as the players aren't going crazy. And I think Horan is a very he's a he's a down tear type of fella. He doesn't look to get excited too much about, you know, a whole lot. He he won't he won't be jumping up and down. I think they'll keep their feet on the ground they'll they'll play down Donegal as much as they, they they need to um and they'll get themselves ready for the next day. Um because I genuinely this is as good a chance as they've ever had. Um you know the way they're playing and really it's down to them. Um you know I think it's going to be obviously the the, the two games are going to be excellent, but I would definitely of the four I have them at, at number one.
4: Oshin are they at number one at the moment? Uh, <clears throat> they're very, very impressive at the weekend. Um the one thing I seen from the weekend was they were absolutely clinical. Uh, up front, they look very, very good. Killian O'Connor, you know, he's a he's a class finisher. You know, we get him the ball in the right areas, and he finish. The difference between this Mayo team, I think, and the Mayo teams of the past is that they were reliant on one, maybe two forwards. Not only had they six forwards on the on the on the field at the weekend, but they had uh, a, they have a brilliant half back line brilliant attack and half-back link. but they're able to replace the forwards if that's malfunctioning they've got 3-4-4 four, four. Varley come on uh, did very well uh, Feeney come, come on did yeah. very well mm-hmm. the options they have is scary I went for Kerry at the start of the year I'm sticking by, yeah. I'm sticking by that for the reason that I still think there's a huge game in, in, in this Kerry team I don't think they were being cute in any way at the weekend. I think they found out a little bit more about themselves at the weekend and that. They're still not the finished article, and obviously, you know, they would have put a lot of emphasis on the Cork game. They probably needed a game last weekend, but they'll be. I think they'll be happy enough going in because pe- the people will write them off now, mm. and 2009, to keep coming back to that game when they come to Crow Park and the bank them Monday and nobody gives them a chance, mm. and they beat Dublin by 16 or 17 points, and they're they're. I think that no, the fact that nobody's talking to them, to, nobody's talking about them, not nobody's talking to <laughs> them, uh, nobody's talking about them, uh, they're going about their business quietly. I still think that there's going to be a bit of a kick in this Kerry team yet. And I think they found out at the weekend that maybe, you know, Kieran Donaghy at the edge of the square isn't going to work for them. Maybe he's your last 20-minute man now, but I, I thought they moved better whenever they had this, uh, the small nippy forwards against uh, Cork in the first half. They are able to exploit teams with their, with their pace and and uh, in, the, in, in the midfield sector, I think they have enough to win enough ball against Dublin to get, cause them serious problems.
0: Anthony, we talk about Dublin each week after they win relatively comfortably every time and still there are question marks, which I think is legitimate. Um, but they've beaten some decent teams along the way. Are we starting to believe that actually this Dublin team is what it's been cracked up to be all year?
6: No, I think I think Dublin are my number two, if you know. like I mean, I think they are... F- I thought they were they were they were kind of in and out of it um, at the weekend McCaffrey's goal obviously was, was well taken um, I still don't think they're doing what Mayo were doing and even as Ushin says there Mayo even when the game was theirs they were still giving the ball to the, to the man in a better position like I mean a man going off his shoulder he was being rewarded and that sounds like a very very simple thing but if you're five, six seven points up or even 2, 4, or 5 points up fellas start to do their own thing they start mm-hmm. to take shots on that they shouldn't take they start to try to go inside a man instead of actually just a fella going off your shoulder we saw that a little bit you know there was players again and we've we've spoken about this before yes. you, you know a forward line will really only click and win in an all ireland if it's playing as a unit you, you, you can't have individuals in there and um, and i saw a little bit again of that and it's probably something that jim gavin is trying his best to eradicate as much as he can you can't rely on your half back line um, and all the same, I thought Dublin Where I still think that full-back line is still a little bit tricky. Um, now, Mayo are going to be able to put better ball into that full-forward line, and they also have a better full-forward line than Cork.
5: Yeah, I actually think that that's the major difference, and that's why I that's what I would have Mayo as favourites and Dublin second-favourites, is, as Ushin said, the clinical nature of Mayo's finishing. If you think of the four goals they scored uh, at the weekend... They didn't. They only had to beat Durkin for one of them. Yeah. Killian, O'Connell, uh, Killian O'Connor's first goal, and again, that was maybe yeah. the best example, funnily enough, of Kevin McLaughlin, 14 yards out, very easy fisted yeah. point. He passes the ball to the player in the better position, mm. and then O'Connor doesn't chicken out of it then. You know, he goes for the goal yeah. that he knew he, he, this is one of the three chances that his team might get mm. in this entire game, or one chance maybe against Donegal, depending on the Donegal that showed up. And O'Connor was able to finish it. Just perfect. I, mean, I thought it was a brilliant also, yeah, goal. Absolutely brilliant, brilliant
0: goal. finish. Why do players constantly punch the ball over the bar when there's a goal opportunity on? You might get two goal chances in a half or in a match, and you see that. Yeah. Oh, I'll just fist this
4: over. I don't. I don't, I don't understand. I, I understand defenders doing it because the chances are going. To <laughs> well, I can't understand forwards when they get that opportunity especially in the way the game's gone today When you get so few chances apart from if you're doubling you get seven or eight but if you, if you especially when you get so few chances uh, to stick the ball in the back of the net you've got to back yourself in those situations and and go for, There's some lads go who
6: go in and just put the blinkers on, hit it as hard as they can, yeah, yeah. bounce off the goalkeeper, yeah, you yeah, know, mm. and you make the goalkeeper a hero. Mm. Not saying there's anyone at this table, <laughs> yeah. scars. Yeah. Uh, no, but I,
5: I, I think it is actually it is a key point though that Dublin had seven goal chances yeah. at the weekend. Mayo had six.
4: We spoke about this, yeah, a long yeah. ago. Was it? it must be three, or four, five weeks ago? And uh, I thought it'd be something that could be uh, very simple to sort out. I thought amongst the players, whether Jim Gavin gets involved or not, but surely the players are getting together and saying, yeah. right, we've you know, we got one goal at the weekend, we should have at least got four. Yeah,
5: but I mean, I McCauley mean, went in in the first half after about 20 minutes or whatever, and Brogan was on his shoulder, crying out for the ball. Yeah. McCauley hits uh, a shot that's saved, and then two minutes later, Brogan is in the exact same position and hits it off the post. Mm. And you're just thinking, you can't give out to one guy if uh, you're not going to do yeah. it yourself when there's a guy on yeah. his shoulder. You know? We're
0: excited after about it. the semi final lineup, though. Yeah. Two good matches. Oh, yeah,
6: yeah. Like I mean, you know, this Tyrone thing, I think I think this is they've been getting their way through, and you know, it isn't pretty. And all the rest, Mickey Hart will look and say, you know, we're in an All Ireland semi final, but I think that's it. They're number one. No,
4: they, they, they won't have anywhere near enough for, for Mayo, and Mayo could do something similar to Tyrone what they did to Donegal, really? yeah. A 20 point win. Well, it's only sixteen, I think. Okay. There, yeah, <laughs> bit of room well, for a brief like there for <laughs> me. <minute. laughs> but I'm th- I'm thinking that they could do something similar. Maybe I don't. I, I've never seen uh, Tarun get beat by sixteen points, but I think they could be. You know, they could be in for a hard time. Okay, we'll hold those predictions for a couple of weeks. Anthony Miles,
0: O'Shane McConville thanks so much that's the question that's going to be asked answer tonight tonight so now come here tonight tonight into wexford park and they just must produce the goods tonight tonight their team is better set up tonight tonight but they just the bottom line is michael they have to do tonight
3: tonight
2: second captains football available on irishtimes.com second captains and itunes from 6 p.m tonight tonight
0: tonight 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 A sixteen point victory margin predicted by O'Sheen Murph.
5: Yeah, and uh smile on his face as he's leaving us here. Uh yeah, I mean I I think that would be that would be quite something if Mio were to go through an entire championship season. It's the aggregate now stands at sixty one points from their four games in the championship this year. It's
0: amazing how much things can change over the course of a season or a couple of seasons anyway, that we could legitimately allow O'Sheen to leave the room <laughs> with a bombshell like that can you imagine two years ago Mayo <laughs> were playing Tyrone in All Ireland semi-final and were saying oh yeah Mayo could win this by 16 points
5: yeah, yeah I know it is it's quite something but I mean it, at the same time you just have to be so impressed by Mayo and you know Galway's position in the world of football gets healthier by the week I mean what a three weeks it's been for Galway I mean we push 2010 All-Ireland Champions Cork uh, very close in a round 4 qualifier Dublin then struggled to beat Cork. Uh, Mayo are the, the boys who humiliated us. Turns out they're going to humiliate everyone. So, you know, there's a valid argument for Gola
0: being the third or fourth best team in the country right now. Yeah. Late, last month, <coughs> late last month, the boxing world lost one of its most interesting figures, Emile Griffith, a world champion at welterweight and middleweight, whose career was totally overshadowed by a fight he had in March 1962 against an opponent named Benny Parrett, which ended in tragedy.
3: This is probably
2: the tamest ground of the entire fight. That's all. Well, there's Perrette. Was
3: blocked again. Blocked him. Perrette against the ropes. Almost helpless. A minute to go. And they're to stop it. They're going to stop it as Perrette serves to the canvas. Perrette goes down from sheer exhaustion. Look at him there.
2: As his hand has put mouthpiece out. Dr. Schiff is coming over to look at him. Perrette has collapsed from exhaustion from that beating on the ropes. And Dr. Alexander Schiff of the commission is trying to get at him.
3: The fight has been stopped. And the winner and new champion is Emil Griffith. But we're more concerned about the condition of uh, Benny
2: Kidd Perrette than we are about the title at the moment. Uh, We're going to have an interview with the winner. The time is 2.09 of this round. We'll have an interview
3: with uh, Emil Griffith. Yeah, incredible uh, commentary there
0: of that night in 1962, in March 1962. Perrette unfortunately died from his injuries 10 days later. There was a nasty build-up to that bout involving Perrette aiming homophobic slurs at his opponent. Now, bear in mind, this is 1960s, this is boxing. This is not only sport, it's heavyweight boxing, or it's a welterweight boxing. And as a gay man in that arena, Griffith had kept his sexuality very much a secret and was horrified that Perrette would bring it up in public and bring it up in a hugely insulting manner. We're joined by Gary Smith, who spent time with Emile Griffith in 2005 for a Sports Illustrated piece, a defining article on this man, on this story. I think it's fair to say. Gary, great to talk to you on the programme. Is that a piece that has stayed with you over the years?
3: Well, you know, it was a piece that echoes a lot of it had to do with just the whole issue of gays, homosexuals, and sports. And, uh, you know, Emil, sadly for him, came along maybe half a century too early, and he had to go through a lot of pain and anguish because of it. Um, And... You know, maybe if he was just coming coming into the arena now, it would still be very challenging. Boxing is going to be one of the last sports where this this uh, this is accepted openly. Um, but uh, still, where our society was back, you know, in 1950, 1960, um, it, he would have, had a lot of anguish over this issue everywhere he went, not just in the sporting arena, but everywhere. Just the, the whole culture uh, was uh, felt aligned against him at that time. And and so just, you know, you feel bad for a human being that had, had to go through to that.
0: His, What he'll be remembered for, Is uh, certainly his career was incredible, really a huge amount of championship fights. A lot of them he was victorious in. As a just a standalone boxing career wasn't bad. But as you say, the homosexuality, which was not talked about really by anybody, not openly talked about by people at the time, by reporters, by opponents, except for one who was the tragic uh, Benny Parrett back in 1962. Can you explain the background to what actually happened in that fight or in those fights?
3: Well, Perrette, you know, in, in previous fights had made some comments. So so by the time we got to this third fight, um, Emil's, uh, all his antenna were up. Uh, Perrette had made remarks about uh, Emile's homosexuality. These are two guys who knew each other, who grew up in the same area, who not grew up in the same one, they grew up in the same island in the Caribbean, but they both ended up living very near each other in New York City. And um they knew about each other, you know, so they were traveling in similar circles and so Perrette took this shot to try to unnerve uh Emil be- before a prior fight, and then so Emil came into this third fight, braced for something and uh and Perrette pushed the same button again, you know, called him a maricon, which is slang in Spanish for you know derogatory uh word for homosexual and And, uh, and so Emil wanted to go after him right then and there. And, uh, his his trainer, Kil Clancy, had, you know, known how uptight he was about all this and, you know, was just right there to, to, to to kind of diffuse it for the moment and saying, just wait, you know, save it for tonight at the weigh-in. So, uh, you know, then came, comes the fatal moment in the ring where he gets, Cornered, and you know, no one will ever know whether the same sequence would have occurred, regardless of whether that happened or not. You know, fighters are trained to go for the kill, and 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 the ref was a bit slow, it would seem, about stepping in, and a lot of things came together, and uh and Griffith unloaded one of the most. Unforgettable fuselage in the history of boxing, just punch after punch coming with blinding speed and fury, just unprotected, basically. And uh, one of the other things that came into the confluence of sorrowful uh, events that made that happen was that, you know, that Perrette sacked against the the corner of the ring, and he cracked could, he could, he, him up in a way. And so he stayed there and took, a, took more punishment than maybe he would have if he was somewhere else in the ring. And, and he just uh, took so many blows that, you know, he didn't die that night, but he was, he was dead soon thereafter.
0: What effect did that have subsequently on the life of Emile Griffith that a man had died? at his hands in the ring
3: he never was the same fighter he was afraid to unload again and, and so he would um, try to win by guile and doing just enough you know to win by points um, he was never the same you know ferocious fighter that, that he'd been and um, so he would just try to squeak by and um he was good enough at that that he, you know, won championships, regained championships, and you know he ebbed and flowed. He would lose the title and come back and win it, and um, but he was he was never the same, and he carried that everywhere he went, and it would have played out, you know, even outside of the ring. He would he would have dreams, and he would picture himself. He had a dream where he pictured himself coming to see a, a prize fight and being led to his seat and finally discovering that he was sitting next to Perrette and that now he has to sit next to this dead man, that he, a man that he's killed, he accidentally killed. We have to be careful how we use that term, but, uh, and he has to sit through a fight, entire fight next to the, the, this man that he's accidentally killed. And, and, um, or that he'd, you know, meet him on the street and put out a hand, to shake his hand, and be this cold hand over the man he'd, he'd, he'd killed. And so it was obviously, you know, basically post-traumatic stress, you know, that he was suffering from what happened that night. And uh, so it, it it bled into his life in all, all manners of, you know, conscious and unconscious ways.
0: The element in the build-up that you talked about that, now famous uh, hom- homophobic slurs that came from his opponent, from Benny Perrette. had they been reported at the time? Were they reported either before or after the fateful fight?
3: From what I could gather, was more after the after the event. When once it went, it wasn't as if uh, it was reported that next morning. It was only after it became clear that Perrette was, you know, in trouble and dying that um, reporters, you know, they felt that they ha- it was now incumbent upon them to report it. But then they couldn't even use the word, uh, most of them. I mean, I think the New York Times tried to come up with a word for the, to give a translation of Mary Cohen, and their translation was the word anti-man, was what the editor came up with it. Uh, and so it was torture. The whole thing was, yeah. you know, awkward, clumsy, and uh, just a culture that, you know, at that time that couldn't, come to grips with something that, uh, you know, most likely one-tenth of uh, human beings, you know, it's it's, it's who they are. So, uh, And yet, uh, it was still, uh, you know, it just wasn't, we just weren't relaxed enough around it to to even know how to deal with it.
0: No, it's extraordinary. And it seems as though even before this horrible tragedy, the, the issue of being gay in a sport and particularly in a sport like boxing seems to have, I don't know uh, put words in your mouth, Gary, but seems to have uh, caused a lot of inner turmoil to Emil Griffith. Then he has to handle the guilt, which you've explained, associated with uh, uh, his opponent dying in this fight. Yet he continued to fight and fought a hell of a lot more and moved up to middleweight, fought some of the great names of that era of boxing and fought more championship fights than anybody else, despite these sort of, different strands all all you would have thought pulling him away from the game why did he stay involved why did he continue to fight do you think
3: well it was you know here's a kid who'd come up from the Caribbean and, and he was basically supporting his family I mean he was he brought he had all kind of siblings um, and he he paid their way to come up to move up one by one up, up north and he bought a house his family lived in and you know just to get by for a lot of these siblings and and his mom he, he felt you know that responsibility so if he stopped because of this thing that was eating him up inside you know he would have then felt double guilt of, of pulling the plug on his on his family so he was really kind of kind of caught and uh it was you know he didn't have much education there wasn't a lot of other options there was nowhere he was going to come even remotely close to to supporting that crew um with, without continuing to box,
0: at what point did he actually go public? Was there or was there any sort of announcement as such that he was gay? Was that just something that was known but uh, wasn't necessarily wasn't necessarily reported that much until maybe his career was over?
3: Yeah, it was. It was never any announcement or any, any real specific point where he came out and said, "I'm gay." And even when I was. Interviewing him a few years back, he still did not like to be typecast as saying I. He, he didn't want to say I'm homosexual. He said he would just say I like men, I like women, I like both. And when I pushed him on, he said I like women more. <laughs> so it was like he uh, was there was there's an association with the word, especially from the time and place that he came from, and the and the sport, the world that he was in specifically, that it was. Associated with weakness, and weakness is the one thing that a boxer cannot carry in his mind, cannot carry anywhere in his soul, spirit, heart. And so, it was that was burned into him as a young kid, even before he, you know, that burned into him that, that that's associated with weakness. And so that's why he bristled when anyone tried to label him as that, because it was it was like saying you're you're weak. In his mind, that was the association that was tied to it. And so it's a lot more complicated than just being called homosexual. It, 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 for him it was being called weak. And because of that, because he thought that that's how society saw a man who liked a man, that's why he had to refuse utterly that the term and so he would say in, in the positive and the affirmative, I like men, I like women, that he finally got able to say that, as an, you know, after his years in the ring. And I'm sure he could say it easily to the people in, 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 the, in the gay circles he traveled when he went to gay bars, that wouldn't have been a problem. But for the outer world, he it took until late, you know, after his boxing career, well after for, for him to even get that far and that's as far as he wanted to take it and you can understand because he knew the association the world made with that word that he would never just he could he would never accept that word even at it at, at the, toward the, near the very end of his life
0: what physical state was he in by the time you interviewed him what physical and mental state was he in
3: he was um physically decent i mean you know he you know he 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 got beat up outside a gay bar in 1992 uh so he he was deteriorating from 92 on um and it had an effect on his mind and so he he was he could be very he's very pleasant he's sweet sweet human being very sweet man very sweet nature um and he could be totally lucid um but there were times when he You know, got a little vague. I mean, is the he there was concern sometimes letting him walking off that he might kind of vanish. You know, that they may not he may not find his way home. So they would be concerned. The person who lived with him uh, concerns about how much freedom he gave him during the day and where he went. But. You know, you could hold a fine conversation with him. There'd just be moments where he'd blank, blank out a little bit and, and lose lose the plot just a little bit. It, it, you know, And that got more and more as he got near to his death.
0: Okay. Well, listen, Gary, it's been great having you on the program um, to talk about a really extraordinary person, an extraordinary part of boxing history, um, quite a dark chapter in a lot of ways. But thanks so much for coming on and chatting to us on the show. My pleasure. Gary Smith there with an absolutely... Uh, it's an amazing story that he, the whole thing is just incredible, but the way Gary explains it there, just the the dreams that Emil Griffiths would yeah. have for years afterwards, and
5: I, I think that I think that it's such a it's such a huge thing to happen to any boxer, you know. And you you, you, you would have seen Barry McGuigan celebrating his eighty five victory, the world the world championship victory in eighty five, and his first thought was for the the fighter that had died in the mm. ring with him. And it's obviously just such a huge thing for any fighter to have happen. It's such a life changing thing, and then to have this added element of you know the the vindictive nature of the the build up to the fight and yeah those dreams that Gary Smith was telling was just telling us about there um that Emil had for years afterwards i mean i just think it's it's such an extraordinary uh, it's such an extraordinary life and such an extraordinary uh night we've just talked about
0: boxing was actually off primetime tv for a number of years after that this is a seriously seen as a seriously dark night for uh, the sport in the united states after some glory years maybe certainly in years previous to that and when it came back on but uh, we will tweet a link to that article by Gary Smith from 2005 Sports Illustrated of a brilliant vault of a lot of their old writing so we'll just tweet a link up for you on that coming up
3: at 6 o'clock this evening That's Yeah <laughs> They have asked for that, really
2: no, you can laugh to walk up.
3: I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that I want to be like me well, you don't know what you're talking about. What you are yeah. I'd, like right, okay. I'd say it to you, but I not say it now. i down to and what you're doing down here,
2: you're me man. <laughs> What's coming up in second captain's football? Well we're gonna talk a bit about some transfer deals which may or may not happen. That's kind of what you do at this time of year, but we're also uh, this something to do with and this fibergas story seems to be seems to have a bit more legs than maybe we were giving you credit for last week. Uh, so we're going to talk a bit about that. We're going to also... I
0: thought Barcelona were claiming that Manchester United had given up on their pursuit. Who's
2: Barcelona, though? And Donny Zubisareta said that. Yes.
0: Sporting director. Yeah, but... Legendary player. Is
2: he the boss? Is he the president? No. So Have we heard anything Maybe from Maybe someday. Pre- have we heard anything from the president? No. No. The
5: impression is, though, that Cesc Fabregas is playing Manchester United like a clarinet here.
2: Um... That he's attempting to use their interest as, a, as leverage with Barcelona yeah. to get more money and possibly a boost in status.
5: And also, rem- yeah, basically remind them how brilliant he is and how in demand he is.
2: Maybe the case, but what if at Barcelona certain people look at Seth Fabregas and think, what are you doing here? You're not that good. 40 million for you? That sounds like a great deal for us. What if there's people thinking
5: that? Well, that... That, then that would
0: be an interesting story for us to discuss in Second Captain's Football. Yeah, Ken. That's what we'll do. We'll have that for you at six o'clock this Tuesday evening. Now the World Athletics Championships start this Saturday. Mark English, eight hundred meter runner from Donegal won a gold medal at the European Youth Olympic Trials in Moscow last year. Fifth in the World Junior Championships. Last year, two of the guys who finished ahead of him actually medalled yeah, at the I Olympic Games. Yeah, which is unbelievable, isn't yeah, it? Amazing level of performance over the last number of years. And I'm delighted to say Mark English joins us now. Mark, you just missed out on qualifying for the Olympics yourself. You do head into the Worlds now, coming up this weekend. Uh, very exciting time for you, I'm sure.
1: Um, exactly, yeah. It's um, it's nice to get the reward if you're not qualifying for the, the World Championship. software after missing out by 1,700 of a second on the Olympics last year. And, um, you know, my, my chief aim is, is, supposed to go and gain experience. Um, in essence, it's my first senior major championship. And I'm, I'm only 20, you know, most 800 meter runners um, only peak around 25. So I still have five years there to learn how to handle the, the atmosphere, the competition, the call up rooms, et cetera. So it's, it's a gradual process and it's doing you know, excellent. Experience. I'm
0: looking forward to. Yeah, I do remember around the time of the Olympics last year, there was quite a strong argument that an athlete such as yourself, an exceptional and elite junior athlete who's so close to the A standard, should probably there should be a bit of flexibility and maybe you should have been allowed go over for the experience. Do you feel that you would have been ready last year to go and compete at an Olympic Games?
1: Um, I think I would have. I mean, I was coming into the right shape. I was running that time just prior to the to the Olympics, so it wasn't as if I'd ran the time of the year previous and wasn't informed the year, you know, and I think there needs to be flexibility with regards to young people coming through, because obviously, you know, they're, they're going to be improving as they get older, and uh, the likelihood is that they're going to be competing at future Olympics, so why not give them the experience, you know. There's athletes in the past, like Steve Ovette, who would have went to the Montreal Olympics in 76, and uh, I think he might have been the same age as I was last year, but then he went on to, to win gold in Moscow four years later, so... Uh, the experience that you get, like it can't be matched to the World Championship or any other smaller meet because there's a different experience at an Olympics. You now you have the whole Olympic Village and the team is made up not just of athletes but of of other uh, sports people as well. So it would have been a good experience, and I think yeah, they do need to reconsider. But for me, I just need to move on now and yeah. uh, put it behind me.
0: It's certainly not bad to be able to qualify for the World Championships though at twenty years of age. Mark, are you any more nervous going into this one than you have been going into? The, uh, the underage and the junior events internationally
1: um, I think I am to a certain extent yeah, because uh, it's going to be such a big crowd but I'm thankful that I got the opportunity to compete in the Diamond League last week in London in front of 60,000 people so maybe uh, that might give me some uh, a taste of what it's going to be like in Moscow but uh, nah, without a doubt obviously I'm, I'm nervous enough but it's, it's nervous energy that I think I can, I can channel into to running well
0: How did you find that experience? Were you able to block out the people, were you able to feed off the the energy in the stadium? How did it how did it work for you in the Diamond League?
1: Um Yeah, I remember just walking into the to the stadium and just being an absolute nervous wreck really to be honest. But first thing I said to myself was just don't finish last here. <laughs> <laughs> And um so yeah, I basically I ran at the back of the pack for, for six hundred metres and I remember getting to that point and thinking you know, this this is where I thought I'd be hurting before the race started, but I just felt surprisingly fresh and was able to go past uh, the European Indoor Champion, Adam Kitshot, and I just I kept up that tempo all the way to the line and managed to pick off several um more athletes in the home straight. But just one of them evenings where just everything really worked in tandem.
0: Sonia Sullivan was speaking this week. Well I think she might have spoken a number of weeks ago, but the interview was in the Irish Independent this week and she said that Irish athletes should be really going all out to get into as many of those sort of international meets as possible she she feels that there 's a, a bit of an acceptance of getting an a standard and then sitting back a little bit rather than going out get, getting on the circuit and getting as much of that kind of experience as possible would you Would you feel that that is important in your career to go and get to as many of those meets? Would you agree with Sonia to any extent?
1: Well, I definitely agree that you need to we need to be on that level in order to um, in order to improve because um, once you're at that level the bar is raised and you need to step up to it it's like it's like when having a, ri- a rivalry on a local basis like if, if your rival runs a faster time then you want to step up to it and run a faster time than him and whenever you're on that world stage you don't want to be trailing in last behind everybody else so you're pushed on to run a faster time um, so I definitely think it is the way forward for, for Irish athletes just to get on that international stage um, uh,
0: Yeah I mean you have that A standard now and you're going over to a world championships it is your first how are you happy enough just to be there, or do you think you have to run a PB, or you have to run a really fast time to feel satisfied with being there?
1: Well, I, I'd like to think I make the semi-finals, and I um, so make them. I think I have. will be I'll be racing the heat, like I'll be racing any final, to be honest, because most uh, qualifiers from previous World Championships. Um, we're running around one forty-five, one forty-four, and that's around my personal best. So, it'll, I'll be running it like a final, and I hope to make the semi at least. And then, fingers crossed I'll make the final. But as I said, I'm only twenty years of age, and there's still yeah. five years to go until I reach my peak. So,
0: is that is, is sort of twenty-five deemed the usual age in eight hundred meters that that you will be peaking?
1: Um, in general, I think it is. Yeah. So, for me, Rio is going to be the main aim, and I, everything is just geared towards that. Really, and all these. Championships, World Championships this year, European Championships in Zurich next year. They're just stepping stones really to towards real.
0: You played Gaelic football originally. Was Gaelic football your first passion, Mark?
1: Um, it probably was, along with um, soccer, yeah. I just I loved the ball, you know, it was the uh, first love most lads whenever they're growing up. I suppose athletics was just uh, kind of a sideline activity really for a while. I just probably love going away on teams and that more than anything and not, <laughs> not really the racing, but uh as I grew older, you know, I just, I was always competitive as a youngster, and I suppose whenever uh, my friends started dropping out of athletics, um, I always had that competitive instinct to try to get the, the most out of myself. And, you know, it was probably um, a bit of internal motivation there, and it was obviously some external motivational factors as well, just to, to be the best in my country and internationally as well. Uh,
5: you're in, probably in a pretty good position to tell us what the hell happened to Donegal then on, uh, on Sunday afternoon.
1: <laughs> I know. To be honest, I have no idea what happened. Like, i like th- I thought they put up a better fight, but you know, Mayo were just obviously up for it more this year, or whatever. And um, they played a fantastic game and can't really
5: take away from how they performed. Did, does it kind of give you a bit of an indication of, of uh, how much sport can affect people's lives and this idea of local heroes having a huge impact on on a county like what happened in Donegal last year? Does, does that give you an idea of what maybe might happen if if things go well for you in your career?
1: Oh no! Definitely, it's great to see like the Donegal GAA team doing well. Like because I mean, once you see success coming from your own county, you want to you want to step up to the level again. It's the same as a you know, and you don't you don't want to be um, the unknown um, athlete in your own county. So it definitely drives you on to be a better athlete. Um, And even on a larger scale, uh, heroes are very important because unless you can look up to somebody who has done something that you strive um, to do then you're going to find it difficult like I would idolise likes of Sebco and Steve Ovette because I know that they're Europeans um, like myself who were able to go on a world stage like Sebco broke 11 world records uh, both of them have Olympic titles and uh, it proves to me straining for 800 metres that I can run a 141 if I put my mind to it so the heroes are definitely important both on a local and a, an international level
0: is, is it about mindset as much as anything else then Mark do you think trying to compete in a sport like athletics in an event like the eight hundred metres. As long as you believe that there's a chance that you can go and compete at a world level, then there's no reason for you not to do it because it's 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 a sport that we've had we have had a few heroes in, but it, it's kind of been intermittent over the years.
1: Um, exactly, yeah, and I hope now that over the, over the next few years that um, more people will come along, and uh, I think there's a resurgence of Irish middle distance running at the minute like myself and all around those injured this year um here on a 330 last year we 1500 so there's a lot of good guys there Frank Gregan over 400 metres as well so uh, that's, that's only mentioning the, the guys over those distances but obviously there's the girls like Rosanne Galligan as well so I think now if we can just step up to the higher level um, get into these top level competitions and just uh, be there with the best and try, try yeah. to raise the, the standard that way I think that's the
0: way forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mark, we wish you well in Moscow. It's great to, for you to take the call as well today. Good luck in the next next week or two. Thanks William. I I, I think I judge too much sometimes, Murph, going by interviewing young sports people. But yeah. well, this guy's definitely going to be a success. He's going to be huge. <laughs> I'm, I'm basing most of my theory around his brilliant underage pedigree and the fact that he does also seem to have his head screwed mm. on and has the right motivation. Which not Really, all, re-
5: really, really dodged the Donegal question, though. I mean... That sort of obfuscation, uh, that, yeah. that would worry me. You know, that's my only concern. You know, we we do we require, you know, a level of honesty about your native county's football fortunes.
0: Some of what Sonia said in that piece in the Indo that I mentioned to Mark there and talked a little bit about at the start of the show, she said, I've never before... And remember, Sonia was the chef to keep, is that what they call it? Chef to mission? Chef to mission yeah. over in the London Olympics. is talking that she might do that again in Rio. And she certainly seems to be becoming more outspoken in recent years. Uh, as regards athletics in, in Ireland. Anyway, she says, I've never heard so many Irish athletes refer to themselves as Olympians, as if that was the greatest thing ever. It didn't seem to matter how you performed there. Just getting there was good enough. The most disappointing thing was that there was a lot of effort put in by athletes to get the A standards, but there wasn't the same effort put in by the athletes to go back and replicate that. Once they got the standard, there was a bit of relief and people start to relax. Which is maybe a very natural thing for a lot of people to do, Ken, but if you want to perform at the elite level, you've got to perform when you get to the Olympics.
2: Yeah, and obviously not everybody did who, who went there. It's interesting to hear Sonia and talking like that because she is by nature, I think, quite, uh, I don't know shy is the word, but she kind of minds her own business. She's never been the type of person who, who really wants to uh, have a lot to say about what other people are doing. So if she feels that way now, then <laughs> I imagine in private she's probably even a bit more scathing about those uh, non-performing Olympians.
5: Yeah, what, what I think is kind of interesting is this idea that they don't go out and perform at, you know, Diamond League events or uh, you know, the, the big events on the athletics calendar that aren't World Championships European Championships, Olympics. And obviously we all remember growing up, Sonia, doing the the Golden League, which is the precursor to the Diamond League that's there now. And they were huge. They were absolutely brilliant, like watching her run in Gothenburg and stuff like that and uh, Zurich and uh, Split and these places. I mean, I actually thought uh, that that's a really interesting point, that in the kernel of those... Uh, competitive atmospheres you actually find out an awful lot more about yourself and if you're going into a world championship
0: without having run them you know
5: how Uh, undercooked are you
0: yeah I would probably make the point that I'm sure athletes a lot of athletes are very interested in what Sonia had to say and I would imagine someone would make the point that you don't just get invited to these things willy nilly but Sonia these are all invite events and only the top people generally get that. But Sonia made the point that you actually have to hang around those events. You ha- literally have to just be there. You have to make yourself known. It sounds a bit kind of grim, to be honest, but yeah. you have to make yourself known to the organisers of these events, to the people on the circuit, and then you get there. Whereas what Sonia says is people are happy to run some events, and other than that, just hang around at home. Uh, not was it, she, It's like not checking the cake in the oven in case it's burnt. I think was the analogy that <laughs> Sonia came up with there.
5: It's a pretty good analogy. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it would be brilliant. I think we'd all be watching if there were more Irish uh, athletes competing at that level.
0: That's us Do Check us out on Twitter at secondcaptains, facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. You can also uh, email us at, why have I forgotten the email address? Editor now? at secondcaptains.com. So not, oh. not that complicated. We will be back with Second Captains football 6pm this Tuesday evening if you are indeed listening on Tuesday. Thanks, Murph.
2: Thank you, one. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Thank Thanks, you Ken. Care, Thanks for listening. Take care.
1: That's the second time it's gone on. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys.